0: Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by San Marco Books and More in Jacksonville, Florida, offering a large stock of classic fiction, a full range of children's books, an extensive choice of leather-bound titles, and literary gifts for folks of all ages. Drop by or shop online at sanmarcobooksandmore.com. And we're brought to you by Parnassus Books, an independent bookstore located in Nashville, Tennessee, Parnassus is co owned by best selling author Ann Patchett and managing partner Karen Hayes. Parnassus provides a refuge for Nashvillians of all ages who share in our love of the written word. Learn more and shop online at parnassusbooks.net. <laughs> It can be incredibly difficult to talk about pain. I might be suffering, but unless I have a cast or a band-aid, you can't necessarily see it. Without evidence, is my ache really there? Grief is like that, too, for anyone who's loved and lost. We carry around these holes in our pockets. Something is missing, or someone and people can't always understand what they can't see. I realized recently that I have a bit of an age bias about topics like these, illness, pain, grief. I've tended to speak with authors who've lived a bit longer, who've experienced a little more of the world, and who see, well, who I see as potential experts on these heart issues. And while it may be true that Plenty of older folks have known their fair share of grief. There are young people who understand what it means to suffer and who've known pain and loss. My guest today is such a person. Lou Andrea Cowart was a chronically ill child who continues to struggle with flare-ups of her disease to this day. But she persists and writes through that pain Lou is the author of I Fell in Love with Hope and the upcoming book, Blue's Shadow, both of which she wrote under the pen name Lan Callie. She is currently a college student in Florida studying English literature and classics and her objective is to gather together a community of avid storytellers and readers. Apart from writing, Lou enjoys etymology, philosophy, riding horses and traveling. She lives with three roommates and her dog, Zelda. Lou Andrea Cowart, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me. I thought I was finished being sad about your book, (laughs) but as I was reviewing my notes literally 45 minutes ago, I found myself weeping into the pages again, and I had to like laugh at myself. I'm like, really? You're just going to cry again? So it's really strange to be meeting you right now at this moment when you and I have cried together more times than i can count
1: i cried recording the audiobook actually so
0: yeah <laughs> i was one i was wondering about that i mean so thank you for being here my new crying stranger friend <laughs> but rather than me introducing you why don't we hear from you folks might know you as len callie because that's on the title of your book which we will totally mention but i'm going to call you lou which is also your name so uh, lou will you tell us your story
1: so i was born in france
0: Twenty-one years ago, um, where I grew up for about
1: half of my life. I've been sick since I was very young, so writing the book was very much a cathartic exercise for me. But I've also I also like to say I, I've been a writer as long as I've been sick. I think I've been a storyteller ever since I was, you know, capable of of taking in stories, and and that was a safe place for me, a uh, safe escape during those hard years. So when I moved to the United States and, you know, my, my illness and became worse, um, you know, the, it's chronic. So it comes back over and over. Um, I turned to writing as, as my, as my safe place. So I started writing. I fell in love with hope the first draft when I was actually 13 years old. Um, I had lost a friend of mine very recently and he was very dear to me. If you've read the, end word of the book Um, I do speak about him briefly but he encouraged me to write when when I didn't feel so confident in myself and I didn't feel it was worth it and I'm very grateful that he did and you know after the the grief had become more stale less raw for lack of a better word um I was able to to pick up the book again in in college and and finish it and, and publish it and I guess it I guess people connected with the the human experience behind it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you you say that you have been sick on and off your whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you say that you spent a lot of time in the hospital, I'm not sure that people fully understand. Like for some people, like, oh, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. They're like, I was there for five days. I was there for 10 days. So when you say you spent a lot of time in the hospital, can you describe a lot of time?
1: I wasn't so much living in the hospital as I was going to copious amounts of appointments constantly. And when I say constantly, I mean sometimes I'd go twice a week. Sometimes I would be there for hours and hours because... You know, they would wait for test results and I'd be, you know, sitting in my chair just like I I was a child. So, you know, it was very difficult to conceptualize when it was at its worst. You know, you're kind of sitting there and you're like, oh, they they say I'm sick, but you're you're not you don't really know what that means yet (laughs) when you're like 11, 12 years old. So it was this kind of just I was just sitting in this uncertainty all the time. And, um, it was, it was incredibly difficult. I did meet a lot of other people who were sick at the time because I was there so much. And, you know, there was support groups for other sick kids. And that is how I met my friend, um, Sam. Uh, so when I, it's, it's so hard because it depends what point of my life you're talking about. When I was sickest, I was in and out all the time. Um, I spent three months actually, uh, at one hospital and I was I actually went for an internship but I also got treatments when I was there so it was sort of you know they tried to let me make the best of it yeah
0: yeah I think for anybody who's ever been sick or cared for someone who's sick you enter like this gluey relationship with time when you enter like the medical industrial complex like my daughter was born with um with some health issues. And so we would sometimes go to her appointments and we might have 10 doctors. They would they would group them all together for children. So like we would go into the room and the 10 doctors would rotate in. So we might have like the ear person come in and the throat person come in and the surgeon would come in. And then the plastic surgeon's helper would come in and the speech therapist would come in. And then the oto. Auto- Laryngologist, laryngologists I can't even remember the ologists yeah, I, I called them yeah. ologists <laughs> like you just see all these <laughs> ologists and you you do like you don't know how long you've been there and you can't remember if you've eaten you talk a little bit about how people treat you different when you're sick I think in the book there's this line quote family starts to tiptoe around you um, can you say more about that like how did people treat you differently when you were sick I think it depends,
1: there is a bit of a culture difference, I think, between French people and American people, especially when it surrounds difficult topics like grief. But I think that there's also, you know, points of intersection where when you have somebody sick, especially someone who's a child, you know, nobody thinks you deserve it and everybody has a little bit of empathy or sympathy for you, that can create distance because people feel uncomfortable around it. Some people don't know how to respond to those emotions, um, and I don't. I don't blame people at all. It's just I think, especially when I was younger, I remember, you know, some family members that I used that I was very close with, um, and who used to be like very affectionate with me, and who would do things with me all the time. They were they were so much more polite than before, if that makes sense. Yeah. Everything became like, oh, it's a custom. You have to you have to say these things. Like you have to apologize, you have to say that you like hope the person gets better. And it it feels like they're reading off a script that they're forced to read off of instead of being the people you knew very well. That obviously doesn't happen I mean, at least that didn't happen with me with my parents. My parents are were very supportive and kind and, and understanding and they were always a hundred percent present. But I see that in other people, like my, my one of my dearest friends who also suffers from chronic illnesses when her flare-ups get very bad and she needs someone to help take care of her sometimes like i'll i'll help out and i i see the difference in, in her mother when her mother comes for example it's i think it depends on the people
0: yeah almost as like people are afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing because they're afraid it will make you sick but you're Already sick. Mm -hmm. I I I took care of my dad who um had terminal brain cancer. So he had a terminal diagnosis, like he was going to die of brain cancer, and he did, and it was awful. But it doesn't mean that like every minute of every day, like no one can hang out in the awful all the time. Like things are actually still funny. Like you can still laugh, you know. And so I my favorite people were just like the folks who were able to be themselves. You know my dad had, my dad had memory issues because he had had brain surgery like so one time he was he was trying to shave with his toothbrush and again like they were both electric and he was just like he's like this is not working and I'm like my guy that's a toothbrush and it, and you know like I wasn't it was just gentle ribbing but like and I know like even as I'm saying this I'll like be half laughing and half crying but like you need you need people not to treat you like you're made of glass. Like I understand why they do it because they're so afraid that you're going to break, but you're already, mm-hmm. you're already broken or you're already breaking. Yeah. And so you just want to <laughs> show up with you and just like bring ice cream and two spoons and just be in it.
1: Yeah. I think that's actually one of the reasons that I felt so comfortable in my books and in writing is, you know, that was, that, that was a constant for me. And when so many things are changing, you, you, you want the people in your life to stay the way they are. You know, you want to feel like you have some semblance of control over everything. And when people retain their, you know, their personality and, and who they are around you, that that's very helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, you see that so much in your book. So your, this is your debut novel. It's called I Fell in Love with Hope. And in your book, you've got this like merry group of young kids and they are all sick they are all in the hospital. I mean, ninety nine percent of the book takes place in the hospital. They are in and out of the hospital, but like they're they're sick. They're all there together. But like, they're just like they're also kids. like they steal stuff and just like they they cuss and they like go places they're not supposed to go, and they like fall in love and kiss. and and I, I also love that you don't. you don't like make them all perfect, these kids, like, They are thieves. Like they take food and apples and clocks and (laughs) a pencil sharpener. And I mean, why did, why did you have them? Like, why do they steal?
1: I wanted to, to show that, you know, people sort of have this attitude toward, I think it's the, the colloquial terms like gentle sinning, you know, like when you, when you do little things that don't actually hurt anybody, but people still consider it wrong and, they find solace in that. Like that's the most innocent thing they could possibly do as they're dying is commit little acts of feathery because they get a thrill from it. Also, I try to 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 make them steal only broken things or 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 things that have a bit of flaw to them or just the smallest things because that's what they connect to, you
0: know? Like they yeah. steal the
1: clock that doesn't work, or the cat that's missing a leg and, and that type of thing, you know.
0: Sony's cat. Yeah, Sony shows up with a cat that's only got like three legs.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's based on my my roommate's cat. Um her name is Suki and when we first got her she had like almost no hair because she had ringworm. Oh. And I just I love her so much and I was like, oh, "I want to I want to put something like this in." There. <laughs> I love that.
0: I mean, I also feel like as so some of the characters' names are Sam and Sony and Neo and Hickory and and Core and I f- feel like another reason they were stealing is that like because so much had been taken from them you know they don't have control over anything people are coming in and poking them with needles and prodding them and stuffing them with medicine and I mean for anyone who's ever spent any any period of time in the hospital it's like everyone tells you to get some rest but like every 20 minutes when you nod off to sleep someone is wheeling in a cart it's 3 o'clock in the morning and now is the time to take your blood I have nightmares about this oh. week in the car Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. When when I was in the hospital um, with my dad, there was this one who like liked to take blood at like three o'clock in the morning because it was like everyone was everyone was always in their oh rooms, And I guess I could understand it if there was a way to do it while the person slept. But she would like fl- throw the lights on and like fling open the curtain and like wheel in that squeaky cart. And it's like, are you kidding me? I understand that, like, a hospital is a place where work has to happen, but I would just sometimes, like, hang out at my dad's door and be like, no, he has just fallen asleep. No. Come back later. No. Just do it. And I know, like, doctors and nurses are doing the best that they can. They often have way too many patients, and especially if you're taking care of people with brain cancer, the overwhelming majority of those patients are going to die. So, like, there's Good Lord, you're doing you're you know you're doing God's work, but at the same time, just like subsisting, like just like getting some sleep so that you don't feel more broken than you need to be is like a huge challenge. The, the kids in your book are sick. Like Neo is battling against this, and I use the word battling, and I don't think that's a word Neo would like, but like Neo, Neo has an eating disorder, and other other of the kids have um, like suicidal ideation, and other kids have autoimmune uh, diseases, and core has has his heart. Like, these are kids who, who are struggling for real. And I know this is a book of fiction, but during your real-life experiences, did you ever witness this, like, darker side of hospital?
1: I did put in a lot of anger because I think that's what I was feeling at the time. You know, you when you're afraid, you have fight-or-flight response, and f- fight is at its root, aggression. And, and when you feel out of control, I think a lot of people either get incredibly anxious and, and they recoil and, and they get passively upset or they can be outwardly angry. And I think at the time when I was at my worst and I had very little answers for what was happening to me and I was just in a very dark place, anger was what I gravitated toward. I see a lot of myself in Neo. I think Neo is a bit of a little selfish self-projection on my part. You know, he's the writer and the one who can be a little rude at times. Um, <laughs> but I I, I think I've, I've learned, obviously, because I'm an adult now, I've learned how to rationalize my anger and process it without being aggressive toward others. But at, when I was younger, I definitely acted out that way and you know, th- those emotions were, were in me when I was writing the book, because I I felt a lot of what I felt when I was younger needing to to write. Even if they're fictional um, scenes, you know, the emotions were, were definitely real, I definitely felt them. Yeah. Hey, how's your health now? Actually, um, <laughs> so I've been doing very well. Uh, I did have not a great month last month. I had to go to the, the hospital a little bit, but I'm, I'm all right now. <laughs>
0: I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. And I can understand, I can understand the anger, right? Because you just, you just want to do like the regular stuff. You just want to live, you
1: know. But it, it's, it's the lack of control, I think, and the the fear. You know, you can't be afraid constantly. So eventually you crash and you become angry or depressed. And It's definitely a neurochemical thing. Like my mom's a psychologist, so she would, it's actually very helpful to have a mother who's a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> but she would explain to me like, you cannot be one emotion all the time it just can't happen biochemically so you eventually you know it's like a graph with a wave you know if, if you're anxious all the time eventually you crash and if you're in that fear eventually you'll you'll get reach that stage where you're angry or depressed especially if you're just not in a good place or you're in the hospital or at the doctors you know
0: yeah and 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 I mean, if you, especially if you were undergoing this as a teenager and like quote unquote normal teenagers have those ups and downs Anyway, oh yeah, yeah. I have teenagers in my house who who are not um, in and out of the hospital, and they have that anyway. So it's, sometimes it also can be hard to know like what is a normal up and down, and what is like because of the hospital or because of the illness up and down. Oh yeah, absolutely. We would wonder like, is that a normal ache or pain? You know, just bodies sometimes have aches and pains. They hurt, like your elbow hurts. Like, is that a normal ache or pain, or is that a tumor? Oh, yeah. You know, like you just. You just, you, you <laughs> yeah. wanted to just be able to have like a normal sneeze and not have it to the beginning of yeah, an immunocompromised yeah, yeah. moment when you're going to be back in the hospital for a month. Oh,
1: you know, that is, that is a constant thing I've had to deal with I, pretty, pretty much since I was, you know, seven years old is, uh, is this, is this a cold or do I, do I need to make sure that my injection isn't causing pneumonia? You know, like it's, it's very difficult to to gauge. But I, 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 tend, to, I tend to be uh, not as cautious. Uh, so my mother <laughs> always is like, calling me like, are you sure? Did you check this? Did you take a COVID test? All this. So yeah. but like, my mom's really good about it. <laughs> well, it's
0: hard to be like you said, it's hard to be careful, like all the all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess also like what keeps you safe? The, the people around me. I mean, I, 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 I'm on... Once I turned 17, that was when I got on, like, I think the best course of medications I could. And from then on, it's been relatively smooth sailing compared to when I was adolescent, early um, teenage years. But as far as, like, making sure I stay healthy, honestly, the the people around me are very good at, like, checking me. Like, because I'll be like, oh, I don't know if it's something bad, but, you know... My dad or my boyfriend or my friends, they'll be like, oh, why don't we make sure? And I feel like even if it's nothing, making sure is always the right track. As far as psychologically, I mean, this has been my status quo since I was very young. So I, I, I think I handle it pretty well now that I've learned how to handle my emotions. I mean, all teenagers have, you know, like you said, those dramatic up and, ups and downs, but it's, it's definitely eased up since then. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much for checking it out. Sometimes I follow you on various social media things, and so sometimes I see you. Sometimes I see you riding a horse, and sometimes I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that seems so dangerous!" And she's sick. And other times it just like (laughs) seems so free, and I'm so happy for you.
1: Yeah, no, well, I've I've gotten you know when I when I was younger that that wasn't a possibility anymore because I had, you know, way too much inflammation or, or it was just too much pain. But like, I, I, I got back into riding after taking like a two year, three year break, literally last January. And it was so, so freeing to get back to that. My, my family is into, is, has been breeding horses for like, I think two, three generations on my mother's side. So it's, it's a very, it's an activity I've been doing since I was very little it's like writing it's like a safe space
0: okay you say safe space but i see you like hurling towards these tall things (laughs) and not stopping so like i want i don't even know the words like i want to be like what does it feel like to jump on a horse but that makes it sound like you're jumping on a horse so i mean like to jump with the horse like what does that feel like
1: how how do i even uh, i'm a writer i should be able to do this uh (laughs) It's honestly just, it's it's like a, it's like a little thrill, you know, every single jump you go over and when you land and the, the rails are still up or you land and the horse goes just a little faster, you, you get that anticipation of, okay, next, next jump, you know, and it's, it's, it's really, it's like any sport, you know, you, you want to win, you, you want to do well, you have a partner that you're working with who doesn't speak the same language and it's, it's, it's a fun brain and physical exercise all in one and it's really, really fun.
0: You should try it. Well, it looks it looks thrilling and it also looks terrifying. You say it's <laughs> like any sport, but I'm like picturing pickleball and like the worst thing that happens You're, is uh, like the ball goes in the net. But you got a helmet. I got a helmet on.
1: Never ride without your helmet. Anybody who, who wants to ride horses, yeah. always wear your helmet. It's yeah. like the first thing my grandpa my grandpa taught me to ride horses. That's the first thing he ever taught me. It was like you never get on a horse
0: without your helmet. But what if it doesn't look cool with my ponytail?
1: Okay, well, no, you you tuck the ponytail in. That's what most people do. <laughs> you got to sacrifice looking cool
0: just just for the horse. <laughs> All right, good to know. Um, hey, let's talk, Sam's. Uh, there are a couple of Sam's. Yeah. There Sam's there are Sam's in your book. There's a Sam in real life. Tell me about one of the Sam's. You pick. Pick a Sam.
1: All right. Uh, let's 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 choose a narrator. I feel like that's the most compelling. Part of the book to me um you know you know what's really funny I didn't actually pick the name Sam because that was my friend's name I picked it because biblically Sam alludes to um quote unquote the the one destined to be alone
0: mm. and
1: I thought that, that was po- a poetic name and it worked out because that is also the name of my friend uh, who passed away but
0: yeah for folks who haven't haven't read it tell us about your narrator Sam
1: Sam is the narrator of the book. And Sam has no identifiable gender, actually. I remember when I first got my my agent and my manager, they would debate over whether Sam was a girl or a boy, because they totally disagreed. Because my agent, when he read it, was like, no, no, I read Sam as a girl. And then my manager was like, I read Sam as a boy. So it's been interesting seeing people like talk about Sam and then realize, wait a second, Sam has no gender, and I did that on purpose. I wanted people to picture whoever they wanted to picture when they thought of the narrator, and I wanted people to be able to put themselves in his, her, or their shoes. Um, I'm curious, when you first read it, did, did you picture Sam as any one gender, race, or any of that?
0: Uh, Sam actually was really funny fluid for me. So for folks who haven't read it, there are some chapters that are kind of happening now and some chapters that were happening before. So we go back and forth in time. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I first read the book, um, in the in the chapters with the little boy, who's also called Sam, yes, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> um, uh, I thought that Sam was a girl. But then in the chapters with Hickory, I thought that Sam was a boy as as far as
1: the the Sam from the past, the little boy, I guess this is not really a spoiler. It's fine. but the the narrator is 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 you're supposed to to realize that the narrator is definitely not human. You know, there's some supernatural element to this narrator because they are existing across two timelines, and they point out that they're not the same as other people when narrating. And they actually took, the name of that little boy that they met in the first timeline. That's why there's quote-unquote two Sams. Um, and as far as the little boy goes, I didn't base him off my old friend, but I wanted to create sort of this very innocent, very hopeful character who along the way realized that they didn't want to be, uh, they didn't want to, to live the life they were living because, they, because he was sick. I had a similar experience, but sim- at, at least at the end, I got my hope back, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess I didn't ask that, but were there times when you were sick where you thought, I don't want to live anymore?
1: Um, I've, I've never had any suicidal ideations. I, I, I think I'm very lucky for that. I I definitely, I was exhausted, yeah. you know? Um, but I never, I never at any point wanted to to die I wanted to stop being sick and I felt incredibly desperate that my sickness was never going to end and every single doctor seemed to want to remind me of that you know every single doctor ever said they said this is going to be for the rest of your life you know you're going to have to you're going to have to adjust to this um and you're going to have to live with it and you know personifying my disease I think helped me a lot because I was able to view it as as not an enemy per se, but as just some someone I would have to take along with me for the rest of my life, and that that made it easier to to not lose hope, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and you write really you write really beautifully about Sam, um, this entity, right? That you, I think, uh, you quote you say like, what you see as hope is a last resort. I'm more than that. I think I am the soul of an unfulfilled wish. I am what arises to keep people afloat when it seems so comfortable to sink. I'm not a woman or a man, a boy or a girl, or a child or an adult. Yet at once, I am all those things. I am whatever you need me to be, whatever face you give to the shadow you need when the sun sets. It's a beautiful book, man. It's a beautiful book. (laughs) I know it's really sad in lots of places but I I like flagged so many so many um beautiful sentences just like oh my gosh like uh, love is not a choice oh and then and then you say they're talking about um grief a couple of times you say in French you do not say you are missing someone you say they are missing from you yeah, oh my gosh. Well, I was, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry just thinking about that. <laughs> that is exactly what it feels like.
1: Yeah. I, I think that that's one of the, the beauty of, of, I really love languages and, and I'm studying linguistics and, and English and philosophy and at university. And I, one of my favorite things is is when you're learning another language and you see how people put things differently in different cultures and it just, it somehow gives you like revelations about these different emotions and um how people process things you know like in that that french quote like i have always thought that like when i learned how to speak english i was like oh we, we we say that a little differently i remember thinking that and that's why i put it in there but you're right that is kind of how it feels when you miss someone is you know you're not missing them they're missing from you um as far as the other quote goes for for sam and and how hope is sort of this can be a last resort or sort of this background feeling that you're always resorting to. I feel like most people who know me do not think I am, they, most people who know me probably think I'm cynical. I feel like most of my friends, you know, I'm, I'm on the quieter side and I, I'm not very openly religious or spiritual and I, I don't tend to, to, to preach hope very much, but my my, I have one friend who read the book, and she told me she goes. I never realized that you you were such an optimistic person. <laughs> and I told her I was like, well, I think you kind of have to be, you know, when you're going through things like this.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, these kids in this book, uh, they are some of them dying, and they dream about heaven. Yeah. but their heaven takes different shapes. I. I don't remember all of them, what their heaven looks like, but heaven can also just be like a great moment or a beautiful day or, or the ocean, this, this, you know, the salt slick, um, breeze on their face. Heaven can be being together wherever, um, wherever that is. Heaven isn't just like it's not just the afterlife. It's it's like right here and right now, this beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen if you're if you're facing an unsurmountable obstacle, whether it's being sick for the rest of your life or death or grief, if you are pessimistic about it, you are giving up to it. In my opinion, I don't remember if the term is pessimist or or cynical, but if you're going to give up that way and submit to it, then you're not enjoying what you have before that obstacle comes. You know, like if you want to go back to riding horses if you're riding up to an obstacle and you're constantly worrying about the next one, you're missing the actual ride, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you have to just enjoy what you have and hope it stays. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but you, at least you enjoyed it while you had it.
0: And, and for some of these kids in hospital, uh, they're at their best when they're in the hospital that, that, that at least one of them is, does not want to leave there. And, and possibly, you know, more of them, they're, they're grateful to be together because their version of heaven, their their community is this like motley crew of little sick, little thieves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Neo, Neo has this dichotomy where he is incredibly aware that he doesn't have to be grateful for anything like his, his life sucks. <laughs> um, but at the same time, he finds gratitude because he finds friendship in this desolate place. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, he explains that he fell in love with being sick because when he was sickest, he got to be with the people he loved and the people who treated him well, rather than, you know, being at home. Hit. Um, for those who haven't read the book, Neo is a character whose father is physically and emotionally abusive um, because Neo is homosexual, Neo is gay, and his father doesn't approve of that. And Neo is definitely happier with, with the people who treat him like a human being, with the people who treat him like a friend.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, you talked about the uh, that you're into linguistics, and you, you give us this, uh, I think it's Eric in the book, one of the, the caregivers who says, do you know where the word patient comes from? It means the one who suffers. And hospital comes from the word hospice, which means either stranger or guest, depending on how you imp- interpret the Latin. So the hospital is mm-hmm. a place for suffering strangers, which sounds really really sad, right like a place full of suffering strangers. but these these strangers who are suffering uh, become a community of strength for one another and neo is certainly at his at his best, whatever that looks like in their company
1: and I really wanted to avoid this group of people being solely connected by the fact that they are sick because I I do believe that trauma bonds are fickle, you know like if you are only connected to someone by suffering, you're not connected by much at all, but they, they have things in common and they like each other. And even if they don't all have similar interests, they have similar values and, you know, they find solace in each other's company. They all like books, you know, they all like stealing, like you said, you know, and they're all like kids. So, you know, people find connection with each other past just suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah and they and they really do. It's there's some just some beautiful moments with these kiddos. Um in addition to the suffering like in in the book, can we actually just like step back and talk about your publishing story with this book? Like so this is a very highly successful like yeah. at this moment. I'm I'm pretty sure it's got like more than 10,000 reviews on Amazon. But is it true that no agent initially wanted this book?
1: Yeah, none. <laughs> nobody wanted. i i did get what's interesting is I, I got an enormous amount of feedback from these agents which usually doesn't happen you know usually they send you back the 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 cookie cutter message that's uh, like oh you know this might be mm-hmm. good for someone else it does not right for me at the time type thing but I actually got feedback from a lot of these agents um I didn't want to traditionally publish it uh <laughs> despite my past mm-hmm. I have not learned I am still a control freak. And I thought self-publishing would be right for me, given that I had the the marketing channels for myself already. Um, like uh, so, But I still wanted an agent because I thought, this can't hurt, you know? Uh, so when I sent it out to agents, I got rejected by all of them, 100%. Uh, but the feedback I did get was uh, either people commenting on the subject matter, saying that it was uh, too dark for the intended audience or too, uh, too gruesome or um, just too much, uh, too mature and stuff like that. Um, and I also got feedback that the writing style didn't match and the writing style and length didn't match the genre. Um, what I, what I think they were trying to say was this book is not (sighs) commercially common. It doesn't follow a formula that sells well you know, in terms of structure. It's not a, it's not a three act play structure. It's, it's more of a Stephen King novel structure where there's a bit of ups and downs and then a climax, you know? So I think because it was so odd and, you know, it needed work, not a lot of people were willing to take a chance, but, you know, speaking to the agents, I the agent I do have now, most people get rejected. So it might've just been that, you know, the book is fine, but, People just weren't willing to take a chance on it until it showed signs of success. Um, So I did publish it without an agent uh, August 1st. Oh, I guess it's been a year. Huh. Hey, happy birthday. Uh, I published it August 1st of 2022 uh, on my own on Amazon, and it sold, I think. 2000 copies on the first day or something like that on amazon and it like made the bestseller list and on august 2nd i got an offer from a publisher
0: um i'm not sure if i'm allowed to say what the publisher is so i'm not gonna say that's all right well it's just you and me here so you know yeah it
1: was one of the one of the big five publishers which which surprised me greatly i was like um (laughs) nobody wanted this why are you here I, i i spoke with them um and then uh, my my stepfather works in the theater industry. He's an engineer. So I asked him, I was like, do you know, do you work on any playwrights or anything? Do they have agents I could talk to? Because I don't want to sign anything without somebody else looking it over. Um, and that's how I met my manager and subsequently my my agent that I have now. And they helped me. Um, you know, they, there were some things about the book they wanted fixed up a little bit because in the first version, like the, the first chapter went in a little too suddenly. Or um, I had this fear of insulting the reader by saying what the reader already knows. So sometimes I tend to overcorrect and be a little too vague. So we fixed things like that, just minor edits. And then, you know, I made a little, a little marketing PowerPoint, if you will. And then we sent it out to agents. And that's how I signed with Simon and Schuster, I think I signed in January. Um, and then the book was was republished in June.
0: Wow. That's really that's really exciting, and it's such a testament to the timelessness of the story. Whether you've been in hospital or not, I think everyone has, um, or will face grief. Like if we are lucky, we will love deeply, and someone we care about will die. Like that's if we're lucky. There are plenty of beautiful books out there. Every year, there are there are great books that don't get found. How before you published it, how did you how did you help people find this? one in a trillion book on Amazon.
1: Well, for all the flaws that social media has, it does sort of break down this barrier to entry that many authors have when it comes to marketing. You know, in the past, people used to have to buy ads in the newspaper, buy a billboard, buy commercials if you had that sort of money. And and a lot of people don't. I mean, I was in my dorm writing this book, you know, like eating ramen. I, <laughs> I didn't have the, the funds to do such things. Um, I'm You know, I'm not a publishing house. I'm, I was just one person. So thanks to social media, you know, you can reach millions of people in five minutes. Not only does it break down a barrier to entry monetarily, but it also breaks down the barrier of time. I don't have to wait. It also breaks down a barrier of chance. Like, um, you know, you have higher probabilities of, of reaching certain audiences with, with certain um, types of uh, publicity, but with social media, it doesn't matter if you make a, a video or, or a post and it, it doesn't reach as many people as, as you hope it will you can always do it again you can do it again in the same day 10 times um and all, all i all i really did was i i made videos talking about the book i or i i was like oh this is like art of my book like or I, I literally just just showed it to people and and a lot of people found it and connected to it and so they talked about it and it, it it grew like like a like i planted a seed and and it just grew like a tree more and more people were talking about it i made a lot of friends doing this believe it or not online like in the book community cuz there excuse me there were people with like accounts dedicated to, to books like book talk, bookstagram.
0: Yeah, yeah. I did not know
1: those terms until I published. <laughs> but, um, there was, there was the creators and they were like, Oh, I'm, I'm interested in reading your book. Could you, could you send me a copy? And I was like, yeah. So I would, I would send it to them and they would post their reviews and And not all the reviews were positive, but it doesn't really matter, you know, because people see something and they see it enough and they're like, Oh, okay, maybe I should check it out. And I think that's what led to the, the book becoming as large a success as it did is, it it is at its root, you know, even if it's not that commercial formula, it is at its root about a very real human experience that even if you're not sick, we will all go through. Everyone dies and everything ends. So of course we all have to deal with that grief. And I really think that's, that's, that's why so many people liked it. I get DMs to this day like, like people will will DM me saying like, "Oh, I loved your book so much," and that honestly, like, I never in a million years thought I would be here, and to be here now is insane to me.
0: I'm really happy for you. Hey, why do you
1: write under Thanks. a pen name, out of curate? Why do you do um, that? Um, so. <laughs> So Lang Cali comes because I was on a horseback riding team and I'm French, right? So, and we called each other by our last names. Nobody could pronounce my last name. So, so they combined my name into like Lang Cali and eventually (laughs) that became Lang Cali. And when I made my Instagram and TikToks, I just used Lang Cali because I was like, oh yeah, that's what people call me. It's not safe to use your real name online. And I would post on those accounts. So that's what people knew me as. So I was like... All right, I'll just, I'll just put that as the book name, (laughs) which is a shame because everybody tells me my name is just complicated enough to be a good author name.
0: (laughs) Well, you have, I'm sure, many books in you. So who knows?
1: (laughs) Yes, I do. I literally, my deadline is coming up for the next one. So
0: Ooh, give Mm -hmm. us a, just a sneak preview. What's the next Um, one?
1: So it's called Blue Shadow. I've already posted about it. So, so it's fine. Uh, (laughs) I'm very impatient. Um, It's called Blue Shadow. And to give you the, the short pitch, um, it has sort of the same vibes as The Secret History uh, by Donna Tartt and Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, who are mm-hmm. two of my favorite authors. And this the, the synopsis, if you will, is about a writer. She has amnesia and she has to solve a serial murder case with a ghost who is also used to be a murderer when he was alive.
0: Ooh, creepy. We'll be on the lookout for that. <laughs> yeah. love, I'm
1: loving it. It's very, it's very different, but it's very fun. And and it's, I, I think it, it's not lighthearted at all, but it, but it's way more fun than I fell in love with Hope was, <laughs> I think.
0: Oh, that's excellent. Well, we will be on the lookout for it. I'm one of those people who, once I start talking about books, could talk about them all day, but I'm looking at the clock and I have to do the wrap up. So we always do just oh, like we'll a quick, um, a lighthearted wrap up where I ask people to just okay. do some Fun favorites, pick one. It's multiple choice, okay? Sure, sure. All right. All right. Uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Dogs or cats?
1: Oh, <laughs> I love both <laughs> so much. Uh, I have both. I- I'm, I'm going to pick my dogs. I- I'm in love with her. So All thanks.
0: right. I won't tell the cats. Thank you. Wuthering Heights or Hamlet? Ooh, Wuthering Heights. The Handmaid's Tale or The Little Prince. Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> it's my favorite book. <laughs> Etymology or philosophy? Bugs or
1: Oh, I studied both. I know. Oh, <laughs> we're
0: well, said to entomology. Um uh, philosophy. All right. Um oh this has a. this is the three different choices. Coldplay, Bach, or Taylor Swift? <laughs> well we'll play. <laughs> <laughs> Play. <laughs> nice. Are you are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. Are you loud or quiet?
1: I tend to be quieter. I
0: think. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band aids are?
1: Oh my! Oh, both. I'm the one who needs the band aids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the 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 mom. I'm the, the band aid keeper. Stuff. Uh,
0: now a few fill in the blanks. If I wasn't working as a writer and a student, and I had a little magic, I would be a
1: I want to say something. I'm going to be a zookeeper. I'm going to be outlandish. Ooh,
0: nice. (laughs) Um, What's one of your go-to songs? Um, No Plan by Hosier. Nice. Um, We've talked about books. Do you have a favorite movie or television show?
1: Why do I always know the answer to this when no one is asking? Um, I know. (laughs) Or just one that you like. One that I like. uh, There... I really like Christopher Nolan. I love all of his movies, but I wouldn't say it's like my favorite. Oh, there's a movie called Two Brothers. It's about two tigers in India, and it's it was beautiful. I think that's my favorite movie. It's very cute.
0: I have not seen that. I'll have to look for it's it. Beautiful. You should read it. Yeah. I mean, I I
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. All right. Two more for you. I'd, what's mm-hmm. your favorite flavor of ice cream?
1: Cookie dough. That much.
0: That's all right. <laughs> uh, last one. <laughs> if we were to take a picture of you, really happy and doing something you love. What would we see? I think I'd be writing. It's my it's my thing. <laughs> I love that. Well, hey, um Lou Andrea Coward. Thank you so much for being being here and making time today. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Hey, and thank you thank you for reminding us that people are not their diseases. And 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 the story yeah. Neo, a character we've already talked about, is he's actually writing their story, his story, and, and the, the, the kids in the hospital. And and um, Cora says to him, quote, I think the world is going to weep for every word you write. Mm-hmm. I can attest to the fact that I wept for most of the words that you wrote, and, and <laughs> that will be the case. But I also know that just as many of the people who cry are going to feel comfort and solidarity and healing uh, because of your writing. So, thank you for giving us hope. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, Lancolli's novel is called I Fell in Love with Hope. You can find it and other wonderful writing out there wherever books are sold and be on the lookout for her next one. Say what it was called again? Blue's Shadow. All right, we'll be on the lookout for that. And to everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself and be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this Wild and Precious Journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloia, producer Sarah Willgrove, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.